We have begun the age of cell and gene therapy. With this new age comes new challenges across every step of drug development and commercialization. I'm Jeff Stewart from Cineas Health Consulting. I'm joined today by James Burke Silk, Director of Scientific Strategy, and Pete Robinson, Vice President of Medical and Scientific Strategy from Cineos Health. Pete and James will talk through the new challenges of cell and gene therapy. The age of cell and gene therapy, next on the Cineos Health Podcast. James Barwick Silk, Pete Robinson, welcome to the Cineos Health Podcast. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, hi, Jeff. What do you guys do? I'm a vice president in our medical and scientific strategy group, and I lead what's called the Cell and Gene Therapy Consortium here at Cineos Health. So my job is really to bring all of our expertise and all of our therapeutic areas and business lines together so I can support companies that are trying to develop cell and gene therapy products. Thanks, Pete. And James? Yeah, so I report into Pete in the Cell and Gene Therapy Consortium, and I've been brought onto the team due to my background in management consulting and Cell and gene therapy is a big focus for Cineos Health this year, so really trying to drive and support a lot of initiatives across the whole spectrum of our offerings at Cineos. Today, we're talking about gene therapy and rare diseases. My background is in molecular biology, but when I was in molecular biology, it was 30 years ago, and it was pretty crude. My recollection of gene therapy was that the big problem was, is it going to cause cancer? And then there were a few patients that got really, really sick from the viral vectors they were using to get the genes into the patients. I think things have changed. Can you bring us up to speed on what the heck is going on in gene therapy these days? Yeah, we sure can. So yeah, you're right. So about 20 years ago, there were a lot of issues around gene therapy. They had a couple of high profile patients, one who died, and then others who didn't do well or the treatments didn't do well. So there was actually a period of time for probably close to a decade where there was sort of a pull away from gene therapy before the technology approved a little bit and it got back on track. We hear today a lot about CRISPR. Is it CRISPR that's saving things or is CRISPR still the thing that is going to make gene therapy better and it's not really the thing that's changed it? Are we in the CRISPR era already or is it just about to begin? I wouldn't say we're in the CRISPR era specifically because it's just one of many platforms that are around for doing gene therapies. It's just one of the tools for doing the actual edits into the genome. So there's multiple platforms, but all of the technology, including CRISPR, has advanced significantly in the last few years. It's getting more specific. It's had better consistency, and we're getting repeatable results out of it. You're seeing a complete shift over the last few years as far as the total capabilities for the editing platforms. For those that don't know what CRISPR is, it did win the Nobel Prize recently. Here's what I understand. (laughs) You tell me what I'm getting wrong, is that it's a system of proteins and nucleic acids that when working together, have almost a magical ability to find a specific DNA sequence, clip it out, and put something new in, which is something we did not have before. Have I pretty much gotten it? I want to say it's almost magic that it's really exactly what you need, something that really targets exactly the right spot in a very large genome, our genome, and finds the right thing to change. Yep, you've summarized it well. That's exactly what it does. Well, that's great. What are we going to change? (laughs) What's on the hit list? There's a couple of things that are on the horizon that are coming, for sure. One of them, we're seeing a shift from ex vivo gene editing being done outside the body, using people's cells and then reintroducing them. And there's a shift back into now where the technology has improved. So we're actually seeing in vivo edits, in vivo introduction of new genetic material. And we've seen actually at least one of those products come to approval already. And what's that product? That's Zolgensma. It's a Novartis product. It's a gene therapy for spinal muscle atrophy. 
It's a single dose therapy that's usually given to young children. That's what the label's for to treat SMA. So one of the things about new therapies is that the science can be great, but especially with rare diseases, my understanding is that manufacturing is often the limiting factor. Even the thing that keeps you slower to getting on the market is the manufacturing issues, not necessarily even the clinical trials. Is that the case? It's a good question. And it has been the case in the past. And I think this is an area that's really maturing, but it's not there right now. So manufacturing can be really challenging in this space. And it depends on what kind of platform you're using. So going from the gene therapies to the gene modified cell therapies, they all have their own challenges. And this is not like making an antibody. It's not like making a small molecule. There's a very complex, long process that needs to happen. And you can't just characterize the molecule at the end. You have to understand the process fully to really make sure that you have a good quality product to deliver to patients. Why is that? And here's my naive thought on something like that. I don't have to understand everything that there is to know about antibodies, monoclonal antibodies, to be able to make it do something. I just have to know I have a target. I raised a monoclonal against it, and well, I see what happens. Gene therapy, I know at least enough about the gene that's messed up or genes that are messed up. I just try to replace them. What am I missing that makes that somehow different? I guess even with an antibody, it's a more of a tractable molecule, isn't it? You have your monoclonal antibody. We have x-ray crystallography of some of them, and we quite understand the full function of that. When you're going into gene therapies and your gene-modified cell therapies, you've got a much larger system, a much more complex biological system. And it's not so easy just to shine a light on it and understand exactly all the processes that are happening. In lieu of that, you then have to go backwards and work your way through the manufacturing process to really understand how it works and whether you're producing consistent product. Okay, so you're talking more about a manufacturing process as opposed to gene therapy. So I need to be really sure that I'm not messing up someone's genes. It's not that it's gene therapy per se, but there are some steps in manufacturing that I'm woefully ignorant of, which is what I'm gathering. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess you're kind of getting to the two challenges there. Like the manufacturing process itself is complicated and the characterization of the product can be complicated. And then obviously, as you're kind of alluding to there, the clinical aspects can be challenging. And there are a lot of potential side effects that come with clinical treatments from these therapies and strong monitoring of that is required with significant expertise from the clinical side as well. Can you give me a flavor of what those manufacturing issues might be? We don't have to discuss every one of them, but I'm just not quite getting what it is that makes manufacturing more problematic in gene therapy than it is in random small molecule, let alone monoclonals. I guess the real complicated case is a gene-modified cell therapy. And if you think about what's happening in that situation, it's a long process. So you're extracting cells from the patient. You're then transporting that to a specialist manufacturing site. You're then gene editing those cells. You're then going to store them. You're then going to incubate them, multiply them. And then you're going to transport that back to the patient. That process from having the cells at the manufacturing site doing the transduction, then growing the cells afterwards, that process can take up to 10 days with lots of different manufacturing steps within it. Beyond just the problem of then understanding that complex manufacturing pathway, you also have to understand how the quality of that product has been maintained throughout that process. So one of the really interesting things is that even doing a batch release from these products is really hard. So at the end of doing this process, you have to have someone who signs off and says, yes, that process was done well. 
But if you've got a 10-day process with potentially 25 different steps, how do you give them the right information? How do they understand that and accept that this is good enough to then go into the patient? Thank you for that. It helps me to understand what the complications might be that I hadn't appreciated. What do you find to be the most exciting these days of upcoming gene therapy ideas? Not naming specific companies, but just good target, good process, good disease, and likely strong outcomes if you're able actually to change this gene for that gene. There's a couple of things that are exciting now. We've seen the first generation of the gene-modified cell therapies come through. So these are your CAR-Ts, and there's some approved products there like Yescarta, Kimraya, and some others. So we've seen those come through, and they've had very good results for oncology patients. What we're seeing now is sort of the second wave of those. So we're seeing new CAR-Ts come through, for example, that they have a dual targeting effect. So they're bispecific. So instead of just going after one cancer marker, a CD, they'll actually go after two. So for example, they can go after CD19 and 20. I think those are exciting because they have a potential to do a better targeting and have a more thorough eradication of the cancer cells. Another exciting area is the way that we're looking at in vivo gene therapies now, really being able to go in, develop vectors that can carry larger payloads, and in doing so, be able to potentially turn on and off is one of the advantages of them. But two, possibly the next generation of the gene therapies will be able to target multiple places in the genome so they can truly get to treating genetic diseases that have more than one broken DNA cause. Do we have to infect a million cells to get one of them to be switched over? Or is it at the other extreme, one-to-one, I can just change everything? In which case, getting multiple things fixed in the same cell seems possible. But if it's the first, good luck. I think there's a couple of things that play into that. One is the volume of vector that you can introduce to people without getting some serious side effects. So there's a balance to that, same way you would dose a traditional pharmaceutical, right? And then the other part is the biodistribution. So if you're going to put the gene therapy into the patient, how do you get it to the target cells? A lot of the gene therapies been used to date, they're targeted through the liver. That's just the pathway. Once you do an infusion, that's how they get there. And that's the cells they target. But beyond that, really looking into some specific diseases, like if you're going to treat, say, a Parkinson's patient, where you know that the gene therapy needs to actually get delivered to the local areas of the brain, how do you ensure that it gets there? And what sort of method of introduction you're going to use in a case like that? So there's definite complexities based on the therapeutic target for the gene therapy and the way that it can be administered. Well, that's got us through the manufacturing process, at least some of the problems and highlighted that's challenging in gene therapy to do manufacturing for the reasons you named. What about clinical trials? Yeah, there's a lot of challenges in doing clinical trials for a gene therapy. One is the therapies are somewhat limited right now. They have been to date. Really, you're looking at a one-shot kind of thing. Once you go in and edit the patient's DNA for a particular defect, you kind of only get one shot at it with today's current technology. So being able to do a different treatment or retreat is often limited by the fact that you've already gone in. Patients will build up a resistance to the viral vector that's used, and there's other complications as well. So being able to educate patients, especially those who have genetic diseases that are very life-threatening or you know have considerable impacts on their quality of life, treating them and getting them to understand the potential risks and benefits of participating in a clinical trial for gene therapy is an important part of getting those studies off the ground. There is the element of the unknown, isn't there? With lots of these treatments, we haven't followed up these patients for 15, 20, 30 years, and we don't know if they are curative. And 
if in the case where they perhaps have built up some kind of immunity to the viral platforms that have been used, we don't know if they're going to be treated again. So that kind of adds an added complexity to engaging with these patients. It's one, educating about what we do know, and then it's also talking with them and making them understand what we don't know and what might happen in the future. Yeah, and the basic problem that you're highlighting there is that when you use a virus to introduce a gene with CRISPR, without CRISPR, you're introducing a gene one way or another. It's a virus. And even though the virus may not be harmful because it's been engineered not to be harmful, your body doesn't necessarily know that. And then the next time it sees the same viral vector, it's a virus again and it's going to fight it. And well, lo and behold, it's not going to work because you're fighting the drug. The same thing happened with monoclonal antibodies at the beginning because they were derived from mice. And so you'd have this anti-mouse sort of immune response. Am I basically understanding the problem that you're highlighting there? Yeah, that's correct. You do build up immunity to it. So a lot of companies, as they're developing these products, what they'll do in advance of their actual clinical study is they'll reach out and do what's called a seroprevalence study. So they'll look and see, hey, in the patient population we're going after, how many of them are already going to have an innate immunity to the viral vectors that we're using? And what does that do to our patient pool? Or what does that do to the overall patient population? Is this gene therapy going to be something that's effective? We're seeing more of sort of that proactive look at how many patients are really going to be able to benefit from the therapy and how many wouldn't actually be able to take any benefit from the introduction of the vector. So past the clinical trials, now we're on the market and we're doing commercialization. We've got it manufactured, we've tested it, and we're actually now on the market. What are the early things we're learning about gene therapy that makes commercialization more difficult? I guess one of the biggest challenges is reimbursement in the space. And I think most people who would have at least heard of gene therapy in the news will understand that these therapies come with an enormous price tag, in some cases up to a million dollars per treatment. And obviously, the way that the healthcare system is set up is not set up for these potentially curative treatments at really large prices. So what the pharma companies are having to do is they're having to engage significantly with payers to make them understand the value of these treatments and then also make sure that they then pass that down to the patients and the caregivers to understand that these are feasible treatments and they are economically viable treatments for the modern healthcare system. I know in the US, I don't want to call insurance companies short-sighted, but they have the patient for a year, maybe two, and then they may have moved to another plan. That's how a lot of insurance companies might view the patients. Yes, they want to do right by the patient, but if they make the investment now, they're not the ones who get the return on that investment. Is that also playing in XUS as a kind of thinking? Or are we getting, I don't know, more rational long-term thinking from XUS and so less pushback on gene therapy, more pushback on gene therapy in the US, which I don't think it's the case, but I'm trying to understand why. So I think we've seen globally some pushback on the overall market price of products. At least one gene therapy company based here in the United States actually pulled their attempts to get product reimbursement in Europe because they just felt that they couldn't get a proper valuation in their discussions with the health authorities. So there's definitely significant challenges both here in the U.S. and globally around that. We've been talking about reimbursement for gene therapies for a decade, and there are multiple really solid and interesting new paradigms for how can we pay for these therapies over time? Do we pool patients and all of the payers contribute to a pool and it's almost like an insurance risk assessment. Insure upfront, pool some of the funding, and then when patients switch around, there's still coverage for them. 
That was one potential option. But there are several others around reimbursement that have been discussed, and none of them have really solidified into a standardized plan. What we are seeing, though, is a tendency for companies to receive payment based on durability of effect. They're taking an upfront payment, but then full payment doesn't come for a couple of years until the survival and durability of the treatment is actually proven. On a patient-by-patient basis? Correct. Yep. Okay. Well, that's one way to skin that cat, I suppose. What other problems do we see or challenges do we see that's, I want to say, unique to gene therapy, but highlighted or, or made stronger in gene therapy as we commercialize? What we're seeing is that there's a need for much better evidence generation all along the process. Just getting a product approved and having your safety and efficacy data and getting your BLA approved or similar, that's not enough anymore. There needs to be a lot more evidence generated along the way to really demonstrate the value of the product to patients, to providers, really making sure that the evidence is there to ensure that you're going to get market access on a global basis, that you're going to really be able to show benefit for the patients and ultimately have realistic pricing and return on your investment for developing these products. So things like the pharmacoeconomics or health outcomes research, these things that are nice to haves in the US for a lot of products, but they're not need to haves. They're really very seldom need to have. Sometimes, sometimes they are. In gene therapy, when we're talking about a million dollars or more, sometimes for the patients, then it does matter, it sounds. Am I reading this correctly? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, the payers are going to be troubled there. And I guess XUS, the thing that if I were thinking about what would I be worried about, I'd be worried about trying to prove the value over a standard of care that is more expensive than generics. That's the problem I would assume is the problem with the reimbursement side is that you do better than, and I'm just picking something out of the air, metformin in diabetes, that's great. Then you can get better than metformin, i.e. pennies or dollars or euros on the treatment for reimbursement. So not a million. Is that also essentially the problem is that when we talk about getting more evidence, it's proving that we're getting economic value out of it. Is that the evidence you're talking about? Yeah, it's economic value, but it's also, we've entered a new era where getting full spectrum feedback is really needed. Really understanding from patients and their caregivers, what are the key things that this therapy could potentially benefit them from? What's most important to them? Is it just if you're treating, say, a genetic epilepsy or seizure disorder, is it just cessation of seizures or is it getting that patient back on a normal childhood development path so that they can keep up with their peers? And what's the value in that if they're not delayed, if they're not cognitively held back or just because of their disorder, not able to attend normal education and things? So how do you quantify and put value and emphasis on aspects like that that might not be a traditional outcome? Yeah, and I don't mean to make this all about payers, but as I think through the payer problems, one of the ways that we've solved, quote unquote, this problem with some diseases, take Gaucher's, okay? Something that has, what, 200 patients in the US, maybe 300 now, I don't know. If I have a treatment that costs a million dollars for that, then that maximum exposure across the entire industry is two to $300 million. And if I took any one payer, it would be such a small line item, it is not worth their trouble fighting it. And that can be true and is one of the ways to win in gene therapy if if the patient population is very small. Are we having gene therapies that are having access trouble because the populations are large? What do we do with that? So traditionally, I think you've hit on something, right? There's a strong correlation between rare disease development and gene therapy. 
the initial efforts in gene therapy often went after rare disease that has a known single genetic cause. So one area of the genome that you've got to fix in order to treat the disease. In rare disease patient populations, a lot of those defects are known. And also there's regulatory pathways that are expedited and available for development of products for rare diseases. So companies have taken advantage of that and not selfishly, but altruistically as well. They've looked to see where can we make the quickest impact, prove the efficacy of a gene therapy and be able to use the existing pathways to bring that to market. So I think you have seen a concentration of gene therapies in things like rare diseases. What we're seeing now is that in the clinical research area, we're seeing expansion beyond oncology and rare diseases into larger patient populations in neurology, in diabetes, and things like that, where you're seeing them going after type 1 diabetes. You're seeing attempts to address things like Parkinson's and other diseases that have much larger patient populations. So you will see a shift as those therapies come through development and get refined. How will we address much larger patient populations, both on a market basis, a costing basis, and then overall the ability of providers to treat those patients and follow them longer term. Even though we know this is coming, the systems aren't necessarily ready for this. And this is going to be one of the biggest problems that we're going to face in the five to 10 years when these treatments will be ready for market is how do we make sure that the infrastructure from the payers, from the healthcare providers, even from the infrastructure to just deliver these treatments to patients, which sometimes can have strong safety side effects. How do we do that at scale is going to be absolutely one of the prominent challenges in the pharmaceutical industry going forward. We could talk about a lot more, but I think that's a good place to leave it for now. Pete Robinson, James Barwick-Silk, thanks so much for joining me on the Sydney Health Podcast. Thank you, Jeff. It's been a pleasure. Cheers, Jeff. That's all for today's episode of the Sineos Health Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart from Sineos Health Consulting. If you want to talk through a hard decision you're making at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast at For access to more future-focused, actionable life sciences insights, visit the Sineos Health Insights Hub at insightshub.health. Sineos Health, shortening the distance from lab to life.